Evidence and Answers. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. When will this event Paul speaks of take place? The great hope of Christians is the future resurrection and the return of Christ for his church. Many believe this event is known as the rapture of the church. What is the rapture? Is this biblical teaching? And when will it take place? You're listening to Evidence and Answers with your host, Patrick Zugrin. Pat is an author and teacher in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today we're going to listen as Pat teaches on the rapture of the church. The entire message, along with other teachings on the end times, are available at evidenceandanswers.org. I'm sure you're going to find this show challenging and encouraging. So let's join Pat now as he presents part two of his study on the rapture question. Jesus answered by saying, Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Now this illustration supports the doctrine or the concept of imminency. In the Jewish culture, they understood what Christ was saying, and so this illustration made all the sense in the world to them. In the Jewish culture, the groom would first come to the bride's house and pay the dowry for the bride. Okay? And with a promise that he will return and, and there'd be a celebration there. And then the groom would go back to his father's house and prepare the place for his bride. In the meantime, the bride would remain with her parents, but she had to be prepared for the return of her groom. She did not know when he would be coming, but she had to be ready when he returned. Now, the groom would be working on the place for he and his bride, and when his father felt that things were ready, then he would tell his son, it's time, go and get your bride. And so the groom then would go with his entourage, and it usually happened at night. And when the bride heard the trumpet blow, she knew she had to get her things and go out and meet her husband and he would arrive and take her to his father's house but the time of his coming she did not know but she had to be ready and this illustration fits the principle of imminency it fits very well this picture that Jesus portrayed for us here so since there is this principle of imminency it favors the pre-trib rapture position for if it comes in the middle or at the end of the tribulation, we would know when it would arrive. And it's a long process. Remember, it's either three and a half or seven years. It'd be a long process of preparing. We would know when his coming would be. And instead of preparing for Christ's return, we would be told to be ready for the tribulation and look for the signs that it is beginning. Second, the church is not mentioned after chapter 3 of the book of Revelation. Now, the book of Revelation, the outline there is found in chapter 1, uh, verse 3. It says, I'm declaring to you things past, things present, and things to come. That's the outline of the book of Revelation. And things present 
is chapters 2 through 3. That's the church age where he talks about seven churches in Asia here. And these seven churches characterize the churches that will be throughout the church age. All right. Now, John uses the word church 19 times in his first three chapters. But once the tribulation begins, from chapters 4 on, the church is never mentioned again. Not until the return of Christ. They are absent from the tribulation. Number three, Jesus promised that he will keep the church out of the hour of testing. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, in speaking to the church of Philadelphia, Jesus says this, Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of testing or the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell upon the earth. Jesus says to the church of Philadelphia, I'll keep you from the hour of trial. Not through it. He says, I'll keep you from it. Hey, I'll keep you away from it. So believers are promised to be kept from the hour that is coming, referring to the tribulation, which is described in the following chapters to come. Now, some of the strongest arguments come from the book of 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians, Paul tells the Thessalonian believers about the rapture in chapter 4. Hey, that famous passage. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry and a command and with the voice of the archangel and the sound of the trumpet and the dead in Christ shall rise first. And we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds and meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So right after talking about the return of the Lord for his church, the rapture, then he begins in chapter 5. Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written of you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. So right after the passage on the rapture, Paul starts giving them hints of when this will occur. And Paul says it'll be quick and unexpected. Okay? You won't see it coming like a thief coming in the night. It'll just be suddenly and unexpected. He says this will happen like the coming of a thief in the night. If the rapture were to come at the end of the tribulation, we'd know when it's coming. Okay, you know when the tribulation begins. Believe me, you're not going to miss that the wrath of God is falling upon the earth. All right? And if you miss the beginning, at least in a three and a half year period, you know, you're going to be able to figure it out. All right? So if the rapture occurs at the end of the tribulation, then Christ is not coming suddenly, unexpectedly as a thief in the night. You know when he is coming. The same can be said if he's coming in the middle of the tribulation. This whole idea of him coming suddenly, with surprise, unexpectedly, like a thief in the night, the best case of that would be right before the tribulation, okay, that ends the church age. That he could come tomorrow, or next week, or another thousand years from now. We don't know. But if his coming came before the tribulation, it would be like a thief in the night. And then in verse 3, he says, while the people are saying what? Peace, peace and security, or some of your translations says, peace and safety, then sudden destruction will come upon them. 
the world will be in a state of peace. When the world is saying peace, peace and safety, okay? There will be world peace. When the world is saying peace, peace and safety. Now, during the tribulation, the world is not going to be saying peace, peace and safety. I mean, throughout the tribulation, people, non-Christians, they will even recognize that the wrath of God is upon them. They're going to be crying, you know, for the mountains and the rocks to fall upon us. For the wrath of God is being unleashed upon us. And then if you read in Revelation, you know, a third of the earth is burned up in fire. A third of the oceans is destroyed. You have a demonic locust army coming, inflicting terrible stings upon the people. Now, the people will not be saying peace, peace and safety during the tribulation. And then in verse 9 of chapter 5, God says this, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. The church is saved from God's wrath. And six times in the book of Revelation, God's wrath is being unleashed on the world during the time of the tribulation. For example, in chapter 6 of the book of Revelation, verses 16 through 17, even unbelievers recognize that the wrath of God is upon them. In verse 16, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Chapter 11, verse 18. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for the destroying the destroyers of the earth. Okay, so even the unsaved recognize that God's wrath has been thrust upon the earth during the time of tribulation. And 1 Thessalonians 5.9, God promises that the church is not destined for wrath. And then number seven comes in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And it is the removal of the restrainer and the rise of apostasy throughout the world. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3 through 7, Paul writes this, Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember when I was still with you and I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is out of the way. Now the Antichrist, or the man of lawlessness, is empowered by Satan. Okay? And the full force of evil is being held back by the restrainer right now who is the Holy Spirit who indwells the people of God, okay, the believers in Jesus Christ. Some say the restrainer are the angels of God. No, the angels are unable to withhold the forces of Satan and his hosts. Even Michael the archangel in Jude 9, he wouldn't dare confront Satan. Instead, he said, the Lord rebuke you. 
right? In the book of Daniel, Gabriel, another archangel, could not break through and get that message to Daniel, right? And he said, it's until Michael, the archangel, came and helped me. Now am I finally able to deliver this message to you. The angels are unable to hold back the powers of Satan. Other commentators say, well, the restrainer is human government. When that is removed, then the lawless one shall appear. Well, government can't withhold the devil, for the Antichrist himself will be the leader of the government. The only one that makes sense is that only God himself can hold back the forces of evil. And it makes sense that when the Holy Spirit who indwells all believers and the church is removed, then the man of lawlessness can come forth and evil can begin to run rampant throughout the earth and there'll be a rise of apostasy throughout the land in the absence of God's people and the restraining force of the Holy Spirit. So for those seven reasons, I believe you can build a very strong case that the rapture will occur before the tribulation and that the church will not go through the seven-year tribulation. So the rapture is imminent. It could happen at any moment, on your way home or another hundred years from now. And if things in the Middle East, if you're watching, uh, I did a few seminars on this, if you're watching what's going on in the Middle East, oh, and if you want to get a great series, our Hawaii Apologetics Conference this year featured Mark Hitchcock. He did several great seminars. One of them was on the coming Middle East War. If things keep going the way they're going, you know, we may not be around for much longer. There are several arguments against the pre-tribulation rapture position. I'm just going to go over two of the most popular ones I hear first. And that is it. These are ones I hear repeatedly. First one comes in 1 Corinthians 15. That passage where it's talking about the resurrection body and I will be transformed in the twinkling of an eye. In verse 52, it says, In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. Now the term last trumpet, many post-tribulation people and mid-tribulation people say the last trumpet is the seventh trumpet in Revelation chapter 11 verse 15. That's the last trumpet, okay? And if you remember Revelation, there are seven trumpets that each one is blown, judgment from God is executed upon the earth. And they said this last trumpet is trumpet number seven, Revelation 11, 15. That follows the series of judgments upon the earth. Now, this trumpet, if you read it, the seventh trumpet in Revelation 11:15 is a different trumpet from this one. Okay, it's a different one. The one in Revelation 11 is the seventh trumpet. After that come the bowl judgments. And so it's not the end of the tribulation. So it can't be the final trumpet that ends the tribulation. Because more judgments, the bowl judgments, are coming. The seventh trumpet in Revelation, it's the last in a series of judgments upon the earth. Okay? And an angel blows it. The trumpet in 1 Corinthians 15 relates to believers, not the judgments of God, to believers, their resurrection and their transformation. So it's a different trumpet here. They're not the same. The next one that I hear, in fact, I just heard it the other day, Revelation chapter 20, verse 5. Revelation 20, verse 5, we've gone through the tribulation, okay? We've gone through the tribulation, and we come to Revelation 20, verse 5. 
And he talks about the resurrection of the tribulation saints and, and those who have gone through the tribulation. And it says, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And it says, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Okay, so a lot of post-tribbers look at that and say, aha, see, that's the first resurrection. This occurs at the end of the tribulation. And it says, this is the first resurrection. So you see, the rapture must be at the end of the tribulation. Well, several problems with that view. Number one, chronologically, this is not the first resurrection that has ever occurred, right? We have the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay, that's chronologically the first resurrection. And then you have the resurrection of the two witnesses that were slain in the tribulation, all right? They were hung on the streets for several days, and then they're resurrected from the dead and called up to heaven. So you've got that resurrection. So this is chronologically not the first resurrection. Well, what does he mean here? Well, there's two resurrections. The first resurrection is the resurrection unto life. The second resurrection is the resurrection unto death, okay? eternal death, which occurs at the end of chapter 20 of Revelation. The first resurrection is the resurrection to life. All who are resurrected in the first resurrection are resurrected unto eternal life. Christ's resurrection is resurrection unto eternal life, not only for him, but for all mankind. Okay? The two witnesses are resurrected. Their resurrection is unto eternal life. At the rapture, that is the resurrection of the believers in Christ unto eternal life. Then here, and then there will be those who come to Christ in the tribulation they're going to realize hey wait a minute these words were right and they're going to come to christ and many will be killed in the tribulation when are they resurrected well chapter 20 they're resurrected at the end of the tribulation as well and that ends the first resurrection the resurrection unto life resurrection of christ the two witnesses the church the tribulation saints and the Old Testament saints all resurrected unto life. That's the first resurrection. That's when it comes to an end. All right? That consummates the first resurrection. That's what he's saying there. He's not saying this is the first resurrection chronologically and it occurs at the end of the tribulation. What John is saying here is this consummates, this ends the first resurrection, which is the resurrection unto life. Those may be the two most powerful verses used by those who would argue a post-tribulation kind of rapture, right? But I think they can be explained better with a pre-tribulation rapture point of view. It fits in very well. And I think the strength of the evidence lies in a pre-tribulation rapture position. What are some life lessons and applications that we can learn from our study? Well, the study of end times theology and things like the rapture have very practical applications. Wherever you find verses on the rapture, it's followed by a practical exhortation. Let me just give you three applications here. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. Before he talks about the rapture, he says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. Hey, we as Christians, we grieve. When we lose a loved one, we grieve, but we do not grieve as those who have no hope. We know that there will come a day. There will, Christ will return. There will be a resurrection. We will have a reunion. And at this reunion, 
we'll never have to say, you know, goodbye again. I remember back in the days when I graduated from high school and we were able to go to the airport and you could go right to the gate and see your friend board the plane and leave. And I remember those were some of the saddest days of my life because some of my buddies were leaving and they were leaving for good. And I knew it may be a long time before I see them. We may lose touch. I may never see them again. A lot of them I haven't seen again. Even on Facebook, haven't seen them. You know, I don't know where they are. And that was a sad day. But I was looking forward maybe at our class reunions. Maybe someday we'd get together again, but I haven't seen them. But imagine one, for those of us who bury our loved ones, our sons and our daughters, our fathers and our mothers, our uncles, our aunts, our friends, that's not the end. We grieve, but for a moment, but not with those who have no hope. As clear as MacArthur's words were, so we can count on the words of Jesus, I shall return and take you to myself. We're going to have a reunion and it shall come to pass. Second, 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul talks about the resurrection and the rapture. And he gives this exhortation in verse 58. Therefore, beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. Be steadfast means be seated, firmly situated. Immovable means be motionless. Hey, in other words, be firm in your faith. Don't shift from your hope in the gospel. Don't be discouraged. Be set in your hope for the Lord will one day return. Whether you go to meet him first or he comes to meet us. Therefore, we should be what? Diligent in the work of the Lord. Okay? Serving the Lord all our days. Knowing our time may be short. We don't know when he's going to return. Understanding the return of Christ and the hope we have should motivate us to serve him. And third, it ought to motivate us to evangelism. Knowing that our time here may be short ought to motivate us to reach our loved ones for Christ and those in parts of the world who've never heard the gospel to reach them for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't know how short or how long our time is. Churches, that's why Calvary chapels, you know, Calvary chapels, when they began with Chuck Smith and all those veterans, they were a church that preached eschatology constantly, you know, were known for the preaching of eschatology. That's why Calvary chapels became so strong in evangelism. They became one of the most evangelistic denominations out there for knowing the return of Christ and that his return could be near, motivated people to serve Christ and to reach the lost for Christ. You know, there's a story of the British explorer, Sir Ernest Shackleton, as they were exploring the frozen tundra of the South Pole. And a situation on the ship required that he leave several of his men on Elephant Island so that he could speedily get to a place where he could get supplies and come back and get them as fast as possible. So he dropped the men there on that frozen elephant island, promising that he would return. Well, he and his men tried to come back on several occasions, but they could not because huge ice blocks blocked the way. But suddenly, as if by a miracle, a channel opened in the ice, and Shackleton was able to get through, and his men, he found them ready and waiting, and they quickly scrambled aboard their ship. 
They turned around and no sooner had the ship cleared the island than the icebergs came and crashed together behind them. Contemplating on their narrow escape, the explorer said to his men, it was fortunate you were all packed and ready to go. And they replied, we never gave up hope. Whenever the sea was clear of ice, we rolled up our sleeping bags and reminded one another, the boss may come today. And so at each moment, they were ready to go. And that's the exhortation given to us as we study eschatology. Let us be ready. We don't know when his return is. When he does return, may he find us ready in serving him diligently and unmoving, unswerving in our faith and our hope, waiting for his return. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for that great promise we have that you will one day return for each one of us. May that hope be a hope that drives us to live for you each and every day, even in times of great difficulty. Father, may exhort us to serve you and to share your word with a lost world. May that be the great hope that drives us each day and be on the forefront of our minds always. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. concludes Pat's study on the rapture question. I hope you were challenged and encouraged by this study. If you miss any part of this message, log on at evidenceandanswers.org and you can listen to the entire message and enjoy other great resources right there on the site. Pat's ministry relies on the generous donations from you, our listeners. If you've been blessed by Pat's teaching, please support him in prayer and with a financial gift by logging on at evidenceandanswers.org. I hope you'll be with us next week as Pat and his friends continue to provide reasons for faith and hope in Christ right here on Evidence and Answers.